It's Thursday, February 14th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman. South African runner Oscar Pistorius is charged with murder. No one can quite believe that this has happened. He's such an icon, and people here really have revered him. We'll have the latest, and later, trying to make the Violence Against Women Act work for Indian tribes. We exist within the boundaries of the United States, but our tribes have been operating as sovereigns for forever. Plus, why you should never call an English author an entertainer. It's like saying that they smell like elderberry. I mean, it's not something you could ever say without getting punched. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. And by Warner Home Video with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and digital download February 19th. This is The World. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman. Stunning news from South Africa today. One of that country's top sports stars, Oscar Pistorius, is facing a murder charge. His girlfriend, South African model Riva Steenkamp, died today after being shot four times in Pistorius's home. Police say they recovered a handgun from the scene. Oscar Pistorius made global headlines just this past summer at the London Olympics, where he became the first double amputee to run in the regular Olympic track events. He also won several gold medals as a Paralympian. Reporter Nastasia Tay is in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. She spoke to us earlier from just outside the gated community where the killing in the Pistorius home happened. Police have come out and spoken to the media several times today. They say there was a shooting which took place in the very early hours of this morning, that a 30-year-old woman was killed and that a 26-year-old man has been taken into custody. They've avoided using Oscar Pistorius's name or the name of, of Riva Steenkamp, his, his model girlfriend, and primarily because South African law prohibits that up until he appears in court. They have admitted that there have been a history of domestic um, incidents at the Pistorius residence here. They've, they've not told us exactly what they involved. Involved, but they do say that there has been an ongoing concern. We do know that Oscar Pistorius is going to be appearing in court tomorrow morning. And, um, and the police here are saying that they're going to be trying to oppose bail. The charges that have been laid are murder. And you're right outside the Silver Lakes estate outside Pretoria where Pistorius lives. What's the scene there? Well, it's incredibly busy, Carol. There's loads and loads of satellite trucks, lots of police trucks here as well with, with lights flashing. There have been lots of police going in and out of the compound all day, um, including forensic vehicles, plainclothes policemen. I've been chatting to some of the residents who live very near the Pistorius residence behind this wall. Um, and, it, and it's a three-meter-high wall with about another meter of electric fencing above that um, in a very posh access control of the state. The houses here are fairly large. All of them are kind of cappuccino colors down sort of neat little manicured streets heading down to little cul-de-sacs. Oscar Pistorius is a huge figure in South Africa, double amputee Olympic athlete. How are South Africans reacting to the news of his arrest? Carol, it's been absolute shock. Everyone that I've spoken to, be they residents here or other South Africans from other walks of life on, on, in Johannesburg on my way up to Pretoria, no one can quite believe that this has happened. He's such an icon, and, and people here really have revered him. People look at him as someone as they, they'd really like to be. 
Um, I spoke to one of the, um, the young men in the compound who actually walks Oscar Pistorius's dogs, and he says that he inspired him to get involved with sport. Um, people here say that he's a, he's a really nice guy, and he's, he's really come across that way in the media um, up until now. And so people are, are absolutely flabbergasted that something like this could have happened. Having said that, there have been several sort of sporadic reports of bad behavior on his part. He's lost his temper several times at, at various different sporting events. There was an incident several years ago where he apparently manhandled a girl at a party, and there have been allegations by, by former girlfriends that he wasn't very nice to them. We're trying to follow up on, on all of those rumors, but fundamentally, Southern Africa as a nation, I think, is just shocked. And what about the victim in this horrible tragedy, Reva Steenkamp? Who was she? Well, she was a, a model, and she was actually beginning to make it big. So she's a law graduate, um, and she used to be um, on the front page of FHM fairly regularly, um, the, the men's magazine here. I actually chatted to the FHM editor today, who used to deal with her, saying that she was an incredibly ambitious, very vivacious kind of girl out to, to make a name for herself. Everyone who knows her or who has worked with her um, says that it's an absolute tragedy because she was just such an amazing woman full of life. Correspondent Nastasia Tay outside the estate of Oscar Pistorius in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. Thanks, Nastasia. Pleasure. Legal handgun ownership is common in South Africa, with some restrictions. South Africa has one of the highest rates of shooting deaths in the world. Joining me now from Johannesburg is Adele Kirsten. She's the former director of the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, and she's now a gun control campaigner. First, tell us, why are there so many guns in South Africa? The main reason is part of our, I guess, historical legacy is that we're a settler society like the U.S., where guns were used in the subjugation of the indigenous people and it's their strong kind of cultural and personal attachments to guns. So that's our long kind of colonial history. And then, of course, you have our apartheid history where the gun law, as many apartheid pieces of legislation, were geared towards benefiting white South Africans, protecting whites against the so-called threat of black South Africans. And then post-94, many people seeing guns as one of the solutions to protecting themselves against crime. What was your reaction today when you heard about what's happened with Oscar Pistorius? Uh, Mixed reactions, but two, I guess, strong reactions. The one is one of sadness, uh, of an extraordinary tragedy, uh, of two families whose lives will never be the same. But at the same time, just enormous anger. I'm angry because violence is not random. It has patterns. It has trends. We know who perpetrates gun violence. We know who the victims are. We know that women are particularly vulnerable in their homes at the hands of a known person and intimate. This kind of gun violence is preventable. And someone like the story should not have had a gun. And so that makes me angry because I'm tired of reading of these stories every day of someone accidentally shooting someone or someone intentionally killing their partner. Irrespective of what Pasturius's case is, this is a daily occurrence in our country. There's been attempts at gun control in South Africa. There was legislation passed about a decade ago. What, what is the law that was passed? What did it do? It's called the Firearms Control Act. 
and basically what it does is it regulates who may own what gun, how many guns, and for what purpose. There are criteria that you have to pass before you can apply for a firearm license, and that includes things like age, a history of violent behavior, criminal record. What's yeah. been the impact of the law? The impact of the law. It's reduced gun deaths by 50%. What we did in South Africa is we looked at the data and said, where is our gun problem? When we were putting through suggestions to draft a new legislation, the data came out that 85% of our robbery, a handgun was used, that handguns were an issue in the home. That was the key issue. So the law is very stringent on handgun ownership. We don't have the kind of problem that the U.S. does around massacres and the use of assault rifles and the kinds of stories uh, that one hears from, from your country. You have to base your policy on what the data says. So you have to lead with your evidence. We had a strong gun lobby here, but we also had a new government who wanted to make sure that our democracy survives. And we saw guns as a threat to that democracy. It's a good piece of legislation. It meets most, if not all, of the international standards. Uh, you know, I think there's still people who are getting guns who shouldn't be getting guns. But the Firearms Control Act has had a major impact on reducing gun deaths in South Africa. Adele Kirsten is a gun control advocate in South Africa. She's the former director of the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation in Johannesburg. Adele Kirsten, thank you. Okay, thanks. During his State of the Union address, President Obama praised the Senate for passing an extension of the Violence Against Women Act. But the, measure, but the measure remains stuck in the House. The main hurdle is a new provision in the law that crosses the boundary between U.S. federal law and the laws that govern Native American reservations. In legal terms, that boundary can complicate a criminal case even more than an international border. The idea behind the new provision is to extend domestic violence protection to Native women when they're attacked on tribal land by non-Native men. Under current law, suspected abusers who are non-Native are practically immune from prosecution. Sarah Deer is a professor at the William Mitchell College of Law in Minnesota. She's also a citizen of the Muscogee Nation. Well, right now, the tribal government, which would be, of course, the closest government to where the crime occurs, cannot take action if the perpetrator is not a Native American. So in those situations, a victim would be relying on the federal government to respond to that crime and then follow through with the prosecution. So currently, what happens in these cases? Are the abusers ever prosecuted? It's very unusual for those cases to be prosecuted. One of the problems is that the federal government has authority. And, of course, the U.S. Attorney's Office is really focused on things like white-collar crime and immigration. And so when they get you know, what appears to them to be a minor domestic violence case, the likelihood they're going to move forward with that is pretty low. So those victims then are left with no follow-through from the criminal justice system. How would this added provision to the Violence Against Women Act, how would it change that scenario? It would do one simple thing. It would allow a tribal government in its own criminal justice system to take action against a non-Indian abuser. It would be limited to only those cases where a man has married a woman in the tribe or has dated a woman in the tribe. So they would have to have that connection with the tribe. If they commit an act of violence against her, then the tribal government would be able to prosecute and take action to protect that victim. So there's some opposition to this in Congress. What is the opposition? 
Um, what has been raised is a concern about the constitutionality of the provisions. And the fear, I think, is coming from a concern that tribal courts might operate differently than state or federal courts. And if you prosecute someone who's not familiar with those kinds of court proceedings, then it would be unconstitutional. They wouldn't have the same rights that they would in state or federal court. When these kind of issues come up, do you think of, say, the Muscogee Nation as a separate nation, and therefore these are sort of border issues? Well, yes. At, at some level, yes, there are border issues. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that tribes you know, predate the United States by about 10,000 years. And so we have been operating governments on this continent for um, you know, millennia. And therefore, when I think about tribal governments, such as my own tribe, I really think that it's, it's more like a foreign government. Um, we exist within the boundaries of the United States, but our tribes have been operating as sovereigns for forever. And so when we have been you know, given these restrictions from the federal government, it undermines that power that we've always exercised. So I often will say, for instance, in this uh, situation with non-Indian offenders, you know, if, if I as, a, as an American go to Mexico and I commit a crime there, you know, I'll be held accountable by Mexican law. And um, I wouldn't even think of making the argument that I'm not from there. But yet that's the kind of argument we see in Indian country. You know, a non-Indian goes into the community and commits a, a horrific act, a homicide or a severe beating or rapes a child. And their defense is essentially, I'm not from here, mm -hmm. so I can't be held accountable. And, and so to me, I, I think it's rather confusing, you know, that we have these sovereign governments within the United States, um, but somehow American citizens can't be held accountable by our own laws. Sarah Deer teaches law at the William Mitchell College of Law in Minnesota, and she's a citizen of the Muscogee Nation. Professor Deer, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Sadly, there's no shortage of stories about violence against women. We're tracking those stories and the global conversation about them at theworld.org. Add your voice on Twitter. Just include the hashtag WorldGender. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. When scientists want to find new species of animals, they often head to the tropics. You know, rainforests and coral reefs. Those are the areas known for an abundance of life. But some scientists in Europe are taking a different approach. They say there's still plenty of species to discover in their own backyard. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program, NOVA, has the story. For centuries, scientists have cataloged the creatures of Europe, the tall and the small, the feathered and the furred. After all, this is the home of some of the great naturalists of all time, including Charles Darwin and Carl Linnaeus, the Swedish biologist who popularized the Latin naming system for every species on Earth. And yet... We only know the tip of the iceberg. There are much more species that we don't know than species that we know. Benoit Fontaine is an ecologist at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris. And recently, he and his colleagues made a surprising finding. We are discovering more species in Europe every year than 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So the rate of discovery is increasing. 
That rate of discovery is up to almost 800 new species a year in Europe. Now, we're not talking about new kinds of rabbits or birds. They tend to be tiny creatures, like insects, spiders, and worms. But the fact remains that each year brings an ever-growing tally of species because Europeans are getting better at finding them. Jean-Michel Le Maire swings open his garage door in the village of Conte in the southeast of France and begins rifling through his climbing gear. Le Maire's a spelunker. He goes caving, and he's got another passion. Beetles. In the last several years, Le Maire's found seven new beetle species. He used to work as a mathematician, but now he's an amateur naturalist. If you want to find something new, you have to go to a place nobody has been before. So you have to, to open your eyes. This is one reason so many new species are turning up in Europe. People are simply looking in new places. In Lemaire's case, he's hunted for beetles by exploring caves and even crawling through tunnels dating back to the Middle Ages. Other investigators are seeking unexplored habitats above ground. One such place sits on the border of France and Italy. This is Mercontour National Park, where families hike and cows graze at the foot of the Alps. Marie-France Lecce is an ecologist at the park. We know that we have a very good knowledge for birds, for mammals, but uh, maybe less for the insects. So Lecce manages a project to look for new insects and other small organisms here. The park is known as a hotspot of biodiversity. It sits at the intersection of several different climate regions. The precipitation and temperature patterns from these regions converge on the park's undulating landscape, splintering the area into countless tiny habitats. Species emerge to adapt to these microenvironments. In Mercontour National Park alone, the recent search has already yielded 50 new species. Species. I find two members of the inventory team crouched beside a creek looking for insects. Marvelous, extraordinaire, it's a paradise for me. Michel Brulin is 63, Pierre Connet, 73. Oh, je suis content. I am very glad. <laughs> the men look like kids searching for their next treasure in the water. Brulin is one of France's experts on mayflies, and Cunet is a specialist in aquatic beetles. But today they're here as volunteers, part of an amateur army fanning out across the continent looking for new animals. In fact, 60% of the new species in Europe are being discovered by amateurs, often self-taught experts in particular insect and invertebrate families. Back at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, Benoit Fontaine says the search for new species in the old world doesn't diminish the need to continue looking in the tropics, where there are also more species to be found. The point is, he says, we should be looking everywhere, because humans are causing extinctions everywhere at an unprecedented rate. We will need uh, several centuries to describe everything in the world, and things are disappearing faster than we can discover them. And that means, he says, we should hurry. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Paris. And we have photos of those enthusiastic species hunters in the field. Plus, we've got a link to the Nova program, Lord of the Ants, about Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson and his obsession with insects. That's all at theworld.org. And today's GeoQuiz has a Siberian twist. (laughs) 
Some of the largest coal reserves on the planet are in Russia. In southwestern Siberia, there's a vast coal mining area known as the Kuzbaz region. The mines spread out over 27,000 square miles. That's an area bigger than West Virginia. There's a heavy industrial city in the heart of this coal-rich region. That's the city we want you to name. Its huge iron and steel plants dominate the urban landscape. The city's formidable ice hockey team competes in Russia's Continental League, and its rugby team is among the best in the country. Okay, a final sports clue. This Russian city is the birthplace of a top female wrestler who's on the U.S. Olympic team. I was born in Russia. I moved to the United States, and wrestling and the U.S. gave me this opportunity to really kind of do something with my life and do something special. We'll have the answer later in the program. Chinese basketball fans will be pleased to hear that Kobe Bryant is on Weibo. The NBA star opened his account yesterday on the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. In fact, thousands of Chinese NBA fans are already following him. David Wertheim is co-founder of TeaLeafNation.com. That's a site that reports on China through a social media lens. He says Kobe Bryant's Weibo follower account is growing rapidly. He has 160,000 and counting. And that's before he's even tweeted once. That's right. He has not yet tweeted from that account. Um, And a number of, of course, Chinese Internet users are very keen to have him come forth and speak. And they've been expressing online how eager they are to have him start tweeting. How does that compare to other big celebrities? Well, it's not uncommon. In fact, Stefan Marbury, who's not the same caliber of NBA star that Kobe Bryant is, has close to one million followers on Weibo. Of course, he's playing in China. Tom Cruise, just for comparison's sake, has 5.3 million followers. Bill Gates has 3.2 million. So it's not unheard of to amass these kinds of numbers. It's worth noting, however, that starting on the 9th of this month, Kobe Bryant has apparently been tweeting from the official Nike Weibo account. He most recently tweeted about getting a haircut before the Clippers game today. But his official account has not yet generated any tweets. And it's really important that we know he got a haircut. I know that's critical information. (laughs) And do you assume a particular demographic who's all over Kobe Bryant and wanting to, to read his tweets? Well, I think it's generally a younger demographic Basketball, NBA basketball, has been quite popular in China for some time. It was first aired in China, I think, in the late 80s. So it's not just the very youngest, but generally speaking, Weibo users tend to be a young, more urbanized group. And I suspect that's the type of person that tends to be the biggest Kobe Bryant fan. David Wartime, thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. David Wertheim speaking to us from Washington. He's with TeaLeafNation.com, a site that follows social media trends in China. And this is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. I'm Carol Hills. Coming up, the family of an Iraqi translator who was killed while working with U.S. troops finally arrives in America. His mother comes with mixed emotions. I'm happy to future of my children, but I'm sad to future of my country. It's bad, really bad. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. And by Warner Home Video with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and digital download February 19th. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Working with U.S. troops in a war zone is dangerous. Many Afghans and Iraqis know that firsthand. Their work with American troops has made them and their families the targets of insurgent violence. In return, though, they're allowed to apply to come to the safety of the U.S. But actually getting here isn't a sure thing. From the public radio collaboration Fronteras, Jill Replogel reports on one vet's quest to bring his Iraqi interpreter's family to America. I'm sitting in a San Diego cafe with former U.S. Army Captain Blake Hall. In just an hour, we'll head to the airport to greet the parents and siblings of a young Iraqi interpreter called Roy. For security reasons, that's not his real name. Hall tells me it's just settling in that this day is finally here. They're out of Iraq. They're out of harm's way. And honestly, I just feel so much relief about that, that now, you know, I'm just looking forward to meeting them in person and to spending the next two days with them. Roy was Hall's interpreter in Iraq during nine months of firefights, raids on enemy compounds, and long, boring nights on watch. They became pretty tight. Hall admired Roy's sense of humor and his bravery. Not allowed to carry a weapon in combat. And still, you know, with bullets flying overhead, faithfully doing his job right by my side, I don't think I'm that brave. I know I'm not that brave. When Hall's tour was over, the next step for Roy was to wrap up his final three months of interpreting for soldiers and then become eligible for a special U.S. visa offered to Iraqis who worked with the troops. Hall was working on Roy's visa paperwork when he got an email. A bomb had killed Roy, along with six American soldiers. I felt like I'd just been punched in the stomach. For more than a year after that, Hall was numb, processing his combat experience. And one thing kept nagging him, his promise to bring Roy to the U.S., to safety. Hall knew that insurgents targeted Iraqis who collaborated with the U.S. And ultimately I decided I needed to find his mom just to tell her how important he was to us and how special he was um, to... Really, in some ways, to ask her for her forgiveness. I I still felt very guilty about leaving him behind. He's the only member of my platoon I I didn't bring back. Hall finally tracked down Roy's mom and called her in Baghdad. She didn't hate him, as he'd feared. But she and her family were in danger. Roy's work as a military interpreter smeared his relatives in the eyes of insurgents. They were all targets. Hall vowed to get them out of Iraq— he worked with pro bono lawyers and the nonprofit Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project. He called legislators and wrote op eds. He raised money for Roy's family. Under U.S. policy, Iraqis who worked for the American government are supposed to get expedited visa processing to come to the U.S. It's a policy that extends to those workers' families, too, who arrive as refugees. But lengthy security checks and a lack of personnel to process applications make long waits the norm. Now, nearly two years after Roy's family applied for refugee status, we're in the car getting ready to head to the San Diego airport. 
Hall is disgusted that the United States doesn't take better care of its allies. And every one of them that's hunted down, every one of them that has to live in danger or has their quality of life diminished because they served with Americans, it's a tarnish to our national honor. At the San Diego airport, we wait for Roy's parents, his 11-year-old sister and 22-year-old brother. Also waiting for them, immediate family members who moved to San Diego from Iraq years ago. One of Roy's cousins also served as a military interpreter in Iraq. He's flown in from El Paso, Texas to greet them too. Yeah, yeah, they coming. Yeah. Airport construction drowns out the family's arrival. Hugs and kisses are passed around. The family looks exhausted. They've been traveling for nearly 40 hours. No more boxes? Bags loaded into a van. We caravan back to the apartment where Roy's family will crash until they can get their own place. The women bring out plates of food, rice croquettes stuffed with ground beef and almonds, and a kind of Iraqi pizza. Why don't you eat? They order us to feast. Talk turns to politics in Iraq and how unstable the country is. As it is for most refugees, finally arriving in a new country is a mixed bag. Happy and sad. Really, I'm happy and sad. This is Roy's mother, who will remain anonymous. Other members of Roy's family are still in Iraq. I'm happy to future of my children, but I'm sad to future of my country. It's bad, really bad. In the next few weeks, a local refugee resettlement agency will help the family get oriented and find an apartment. Roy's sister will enroll in school. His father will get help finding work. For now, Roy's family is relieved, and they credit Hall for that. Here's Roy's mother again. I uh, see Blake, my angel. Really, really, I see him. The angel, the, the God sent him to me. Really, really, Blake. He's like Roy. Because he loved Roy, I see Roy in him. Roy's father says he dreamt of his son twice during the long flights over to the U.S. His nephew translates. And they're saying, like, Roy, most likely he's uh, happy. He's looking from upstairs, like, looking at his family now gathering with Blake. And The family's first night in the U.S. wears on. In the morning, they'll start the rest of their lives. For The World, I'm Jill Replogle in San Diego. Was that they going to close the island? You can see pictures of Blake Hall and his interpreter Roy back when they were in Iraq at theworld.org. That's also where you'll find my latest work as the world's cartoon editor. I follow political cartoons around the globe to find out how other countries are interpreting and talking about news. And that's how I came across Omid Mamarian. He's an Iranian journalist and blogger who was arrested in 2004 and spent 55 days in prison, mostly in solitary confinement, where he was subjected to repeated torture. International pressure forced Mamarian's release, and he now lives in the U.S. Mamarian has a new book called Sketches of Iran. It explores human rights issues in Iran through political cartoons. Cartoons have a very permanent effect in people's mind. It's a great medium to communicate a message with people. In recent years, cartoons and their messages have really irked Iranian authorities. Many of the cartoons in Memarian's book are by Iranian cartoonists who are now in exile. Like him, they were intimidated, arrested, and in some cases tortured. Memarian says the crackdown on cartoonists coincided with the rise of social media. The current government has become more vigilant about the role of media 
the role of journalists, cartoonists, bloggers, and they have come to this understanding how the Internet works. Ten years ago, they didn't have any idea of the significance of the Internet. They have come to this understanding that, you know, Internet is important, social media is very important, and that's why I think the crackdown has become more severe over the past few years because they want to also control the Internet and the media online. Now, you feature the work of cartoonists still in Iran. They still are cartooning. How do they get around the constraints of working there? They are in a very delicate situation. They have to do their work. At the same time, they have to communicate with people and talk about the issues that the society is facing. So their language, I think, um, has changed. Uh, is more ambiguous, and you have to read between the lines. You have to explore the cartoon. You have to be imaginative to capture the meaning of the cartoon. So if you live there, you get the message. If you don't live there and know about what's happening in Iran, you get the message. You see what the cartoonist is saying. Has cartooning been a big part of the Iranian press? Actually, it's very interesting. Uh, when I came here to the States in 2005, um, I, I see that many newspapers do not have a daily cartoon, for example. But in Iran, major publications, major newspapers, they have a cartoon, a, a daily cartoon. So cartoons are a very important component of newspapers in Iran and people really like look into those cartoons. I remember you know my father who is a, just a regular newspaper reader. One of the first things you know he, 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 he loved to see in the newspaper when he bought was to see the cartoon of the day. So it shows how cartoonists are close to people and how people care about what they do. You know I discovered Iranian political cartoons in the Persian language press and until recently I wasn't able to get them translated and what's interesting is to an English-language news outlet, you discover these other language presses, and it's like a gold mine. Oh, my gosh, there's this whole other conversation going on about Iran that we don't really know about. What are the issues that get discussed in the Persian-language press that you just don't see in the American mainstream press? Overall, the major issues that are discussed in the Western media, particularly in the U.S., um, we see just discussions about Iran's nuclear program, or uh, crazy things that uh, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad says or the, uh, the other Ayatollahs. But um, there's a life going on in, in Iran. It's a very vibrant society. Ayatollahs run the country in Iran, and uh, it's a religious society to a large extent. People are, are forced to have hijab, cover their hair and, and, and their bodies, I mean, women. And uh, at the same time, we see that three decades after the revolution and Islamic revolution, people are trying to be different. And the way people dress up in Tehran or other cities, the way people, the music they listen to, the movies they, they watch, uh, I think it shows it's, it's, it's far from what the authorities expected people to do. So we see a very wide um, gap between the people and the state. So I think those phenomena, I, I don't see those kind of issues uh, very much reflected in the Western media. I'm curious, do the exile Iranian cartoonists and the Iranian cartoonists in Iran, are they in conversation? Are they, because of the web and the Internet, can these groups kind of be in touch in a way they couldn't before? I think the impact of the Internet is phenomenal. Many of the cartoonists who left Iran they put their works online. And uh, via Facebook, via Twitter, via different websites that have been launched over the past years out of Iran, 
they basically present their work and people see and comment and share it on Facebook. And, you know, and, and so you see there is a very alive communication between inside Iran and out of Iran. That's why these cartoonists continue to work. That's why these cartoonists find encouragement to pursue what they were doing in Iran in exile. And that's why their work is still strong and is still a part of the conversation, general conversation, social conversation in Iran. Omid Bamarian's new book is called Sketches of Iran. It's a collection of cartoons and essays about Iranians who've been persecuted for trying to express themselves. I've also put together a slideshow of recent Iranian political cartoons, including one of my favorites. It shows an Iranian couple trying to kiss on Valentine's Day, while a revolutionary guard tries in vain to intervene. You can see it at theworld.org. Now, earlier this week, Britain's award for Hatchet Job of the Year was announced. It's given to the writer of the nastiest, funniest, most trenchant book review of the past 12 months. Those Brits do like their blood sports. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. This year's winner is Camilla Long of London's Sunday Times. She wrote a review of a divorce memoir called Aftermath. Long said this kind of thing about it. We have acres of poetic whimsy and vague literary blah, a needy, neurotic mandolin solo of reflections on child sacrifice and asides about drains. Cruel stuff, not only to the author, but also to mandolins, quite like mandolins. Also, let's not forget, this was a book about a divorce. Pile on the pain, why don't you? I'm thrilled. I'm very, very pleased and honoured. This is the critic who wielded the champion hatchet, Camilla Long. And um, I think it's uh, it's a great award, and I think the uh, the yes, yes, the uh, spirit in which it's awarded is um, exactly the right thing for books and book reviews um, to encourage wild and thrilling and interesting and thoughtful criticism. Wild and thrilling, you say? That's true. We Brits do rather go in for all that. Of the eight book reviewers shortlisted for the Hatchet of the Year Award, seven were of the British persuasion. Only one was American, Ron Charles of the Washington Post. Now, of course, you do get thrillingly mean reviews here. But in general, perhaps you're simply nicer people, less inclined to dish out the brutal truth. Or perhaps, unlike British critics such as Camilla Long, you don't want the review itself to be the thing that people focus on. What you underestimate is the effort it takes to be rude about something. It's much, much easier to be sort of nice and talk about kittens and say how wonderful something is. You can do that very easily. But it actually takes... I'd love to know exactly how, how, how much more calories you burn writing an angry review rather than a... Than a, a whole book? The defence is that angry takedowns are in the service of readers, and oftentimes they are funny. Another book review in the running this year talked of pages that one could shuffle and read in any order. But that kind of thing doesn't seem okay here in the States. You know, I'm a writer. I've written two books in America. I don't think I would ever have published two books in England. Luke Dempsey is deputy editor of Bookish.com, a site that connects readers with books and authors. And he sees a generosity of spirit in America's book world, a readiness to want the best for authors, a recognition that their intentions are generally honest and that their efforts deserve to be treated fairly. But maybe British authors deserve the cruel takedowns. Literary writers in America, with some exceptions, tend to be pretty down-to-earth figures. A far cry from the writer-sage grotesques who tromp about the British cultural landscape with rarefied self-importance. Actually, this is fun. I just think people understand that maybe writers aren't, you know, a, a subsection of the gods. 
They may just be people who are really handy with a line or have got great stories to tell or are entertainers. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Whereas I think if you went to the top literary figures in England and said, you're a fantastic entertainer, it's like saying that they smell like elderberry. I mean, it's not something you could ever say without getting punched. Maybe a good public humiliation performs another service. It might dissuade a writer from writing some awful book that ought never to be written and now won't be. But that kind of cynicism doesn't come easily to you Americans. And for that, I'm grateful. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. Well, that wasn't very good, was it? I thought the language was dull and the arguments weak. And he sounds like a vacuum cleaner. Galifant wouldn't know the difference between a good review and a bad review if he had a subscription to the London Review of Reviews. My dog has done better. Hi, my dog. Wow, those Brits are mean. This is PRI, Public Radio International. This is The World. I'm Carol Hills. The International Olympic Committee dropped a bombshell this week. You've heard about it, right? It decided to cut wrestling from the program as of the 2020 Summer Games. Elena Perovskova says at first she thought the news was a bad rumor. Then the shock set in. She's a top member of the U.S. Olympic wrestling team in the 63-kilogram category. That's about 138 pounds. Elena, why are you shocked? Honestly, I... I just never expected it. Wrestling is one of the core sports of the Olympics, and there's so much participation across the world, within the United States and the world. So for me to kind of know that wrestling was um, recommended to be dropped from 2020 Olympics, it was really unbelievable, to be honest. Now, the IOC says wrestling just isn't as popular as taekwondo, field hockey, and ping pong. Do you believe it? No, I think all those sports combined, I think wrestling is still more popular. The standards that they have for, I guess, picking sports and the standards that they judge wrestling by doesn't really seem to fit when they say wrestling is not as popular or um, doesn't have as much viewers or maybe it costs too much or whatever it is. None of those points fit because wrestling doesn't cost any money and it is more popular. So many countries wrestle across the world because it doesn't take any money. You know, uh, kids can start wrestling barefoot on the ground somewhere. All they need is somebody, just some guidance and a little bit of coaching. So I would have to disagree with the IOC. And you you were born in actually a country that's just huge in wrestling, Russia. Have you talked to Russian wrestlers and how are they reacting to this? I think the reaction they're having just like all the wrestlers across the world is I think first of all shock and I think it's going to really bring the wrestling community together to fight this because we are a big community so I think once uh, everybody steps up and voices their opinions to the IOC I think um, I think they might change their mind that's what I'm hoping for so So where in, in Russia are you from by the way I am from Novokuznetsk Novokuznetsk which we've snuck that in it's actually the answer to our geo quiz today place Novokuznetsk for us in Russia where is it um, it's in Siberia. Siberia is big, so um, it's on the left side of Mongolia, where Mongolia kind of ends. So you're way out there. Nova way out there. Way out there. <laughs> I imagine that there's a lot of wrestlers in Novokuznetsk. Yeah, um, actually, five hours away from there, going north, there's a town called Krasnoyarsk. That's a really big uh, wrestling hotbed, and a lot of great wrestlers have come from that area. So, yeah. You're 26. You're at the top of your game. Wrestling is going to happen in the 2016 Olympics, which you're training for. But does the news that it may not be in the 2020, does that affect your training? Are you kind of losing heart a bit? Uh, No. I mean, 2016 is my goal, and I plan to retire after that. I mean, again, you never know, but that's the plan. So it doesn't really affect me so much. But the thing is, is I think about all the other athletes out there, just not in the United States, but just across the world. I mean, I was born in Russia. I moved to the United States, and wrestling and the U.S. gave me this opportunity to 
really kind of do something with my life and do something special. And to see that kind of opportunity to be taken away from so many other athletes across the world, it's just, it's kind of heartbreaking, you know? So what are you doing to train for the 2016 Olympics, which of course will still have wrestling? A lot of running, lifting, wrestling on the mat. <laughs> Same things I've been doing. Uh, I train at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, and it's a great training facility. We have great coaches, and I'm going to continue to live there for the next four years, keep going to competitions across the world, and keep getting better and faster, stronger, <laughs> you know, make it to the 2016 Olympics in Rio. Good luck. We've been speaking to U.S. Olympic wrestler Elena Pirashkova. Thanks so much, Elena. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Finally today, we take you to Berkeley, California, where teams of college students faced off recently in an Indian Bhangra dance contest that was intensely competitive, to say the least. Think of it as the Super Bowl of Bhangra. Bollywood Berkeley is just one of the major Bollywood dance-offs gripping Indian-American students across the country. Lonnie Shavelson takes us there. India's hyper-sentimental Bollywood films are luring in Indian-American college students raised in the U.S., but still glued by family to India. Bollywood has now become part of the American conversation. It's become the language in which India and America are talking to each other through these children, through these lives. That's University of San Francisco media studies professor Vamsi Juluri. Bollywood, Berkeley, all these dance programs represent the coming together of the public and private selves of Indian Americans. Until a few years ago, many Indian immigrants kept their Indian and American selves somewhat hyphenated and separate. So they were Americans publicly, Monday to Friday, and Saturday and Sunday they were Indians. And with Bollywood, for the first time, there's a hybrid culture that is starting to emerge. Neil, you know what your problem is? You don't take anything seriously. I think you're a little too serious. Loosen up. On stage with the University of Michigan's Mansell Dance Team, 20 glittery dancers condense their own Bollywood film into an eight-minute competitive story dance. Think a stage full of gymnasts in saris, flying through bhangra moves in a boy meets girl, girl snubs boy, girl taunts and flirts with boy. Until, well, you get the picture. I love you. Let me show you how to put the past behind you and live for today. These students study biomedical engineering, media and communications. They are culturally modern Americans. But on this Bollywood stage, they act out 1950s scenes with subservient women, sorry, girls, chasing standoffish boys until the girls win the boys' love. Though Michigan dancer Proma Kosla says they're not all like that. There are films that show like really strong women, really talented actresses in, in roles where you know they have it all, they can accomplish anything, and they're really strong role models. But at the same time, you still get commercial films where they're kind of dumbed down, they're just, they're very much about appearance, sex symbols, they're just kind of dancing and acting dumb. There are stereotype reversals. On this night, the UC Irvine team performs Cinderfella, a Bollywood-style reenactment of Cinderella, with a guy at the center of the story. Mommy, can I please go to the ball tomorrow night? No, you still have to clean and study for your MCAT. 
But mommy, everyone's going. Okay, fine. Make sure you're back by midnight. Yes. I hope I see Chani. Ye kali kali aakhein. Cinderella is followed by a drama of a president's daughter in love with her bodyguard. Oh no. I can't be falling in love. Like in the real Bollywood, these are themes of class struggles, poverty and wealth, weakness and power, tradition and rebellion. But in the end, always, every struggle is conquered by love. I love you, Snow White. I love you too. For the world, I'm Lonnie Shavelson. the dance moves from the Bollywood Berkeley Dance Contest. We've got video at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Carol Hills. Happy Valentine's Day. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International